Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Well, first of all, let me say uh, how, how thankful I am for all the folks in the audiovisual and the IT folks who have worked so hard to get this set up for us. Um, I've often thought that that kind of a ministry uh, is a is quintessential Christian service. When it goes well, nobody notices, and when it goes badly, everybody notices. But I, I just jest there. But in reality, if you think about it, the um, uh, that's really an, an illustration of what we need to be. In other words, when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, who do people see? They don't really see us. They see the Lord Jesus, don't they? And so I just want to say how much I appreciate all the good work that they do, and uh, thank you for all that work. That being said, uh, obviously we're on small screen here instead of large screen, so you've got a few choices here. Uh, Number one, uh, you can uh, move a little closer so you can see that. Feel free to go ahead and do that if you'd like. Uh, secondly, uh, at the uh, outside, we also have the outline with the blanks filled in, as Pastor mentioned. And so you can look at those, or you can uh, get out your telescope or do whatever you need to do uh, to be able to see. Um, uh, we are now in our seventh of eight sessions on the Book of Romans, and really it's an overview. It perhaps is ambitious to say grasping the, the gospel uh, in Romans, but I hope that through having gone through this, we can see the connections between the different things that Paul is teaching, the different doctrinal truths, and the overall theme, which is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And uh, I trust that will be a blessing and a help to you. And really, we move now into the next section, which is the uh, practical application section uh, of the book. And uh, that is lesson six. The gospel is the foundation of Christian living. The gospel is the foundation of Christian living. And I I think of an illustration, I think I mentioned this before, that uh, I remember uh, doing some traveling in Latin America, and there's some uh, parts of the world where uh, uh, they build a lot with concrete and uh, reinforcing a steel rebar, and uh, they may may, uh, be building a house, and they'll build one story, and then they will leave the pillars and they'll leave kind of rebar sticking up out of the pillars in order to be able to tie in a second story. So they leave the rebar up, and then when they go to build the second story on top of the first story, uh, they, um, they go ahead and they pour those columns and they tie the rebar in. And I think that's a really a wonderful illustration because the gospel is like the foundation, and everything needs to be tied to the foundation. And when our Christian lives are not strongly connected to the gospel, when we don't understand how the gospel flows into what we believe about Christian living and what we do in Christian living, then uh, I think that we are much more likely to be blown about with every wind of doctrine and with every, um, uh, every wave of the sea and driven and tossed, and we're not able then to be able to stand firm uh, in our faith. So the idea is to have a gospel-founded or a gospel foundation uh, beneath who we are and what we do in our Christian lives. So that's lesson six. And um, really, I think the theme here, you can see here, you can turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. And this is a very familiar couple of verses. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Dear Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is without question, without doubt, without rival, it is the good news. Uh, Any good news we may have in this life or in the world to come is really subsidiary to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the gospel, we are justified, declared righteous in your sight. By the gospel, we are reconciled to you. By the gospel, we are no longer condemned, but we are children of God. By the gospel, we are dead to sin and dead to the law that we might live in grace and live under in righteousness and live in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. By grace, we're part of your eternal plan whereby you make the gospel available and you save both Jews and Gentiles. And one day you will be manifest as the great Savior of the whole world. All of these things we have. And now we pray that we would respond appropriately by incorporating these truths into our lives to live the kind of life that adorns the gospel, that is appropriate for the gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's ask the question first, uh, where are we uh, in the outline of the book of Romans? The, um, uh, as, uh, we, in addition to the outline for today with the blanks filled in, there are also copies of the uh, analytical outline of the book of Romans. And, and how does that relate really to what we're doing here? Well, these are messages with spiritual and practical application for each of the main sections of the book. But uh, what the analytical outline does is it kind of gives you a sense as to the structure of the book of Romans, how the whole thing hangs together. So I think it's worthwhile as you're reading the book, as you're studying it, as you go back and review, even as you look at the sermon notes, perhaps, that you can see how everything fits together in one whole. Paul is very logical and very uh, purpose-oriented as he is uh, developing his argument in the book of Romans. And so what have we seen so far? Well, first of all, we looked at the introduction, Paul's ministry of the gospel to believers. That is, that Paul wanted to present to these believers in Rome the gospel that he preached so that they would know it, so that they could partner with him, but also that they could enjoy the spiritual blessing of understanding or grasping the gospel better. Then after uh, number one, we went to number two, the gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. The foundation, the foundation of everything we have in the Christian life, according to the way Paul presents the gospel in Romans, is the concept of justification, whereby God declares us righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Everybody needs it because we're all unrighteous, and everyone has it available to them because it is through faith and not through the works of the law. And so Paul establishes that foundational truth that then is the basis for all of our Christian living. Then the gospel, as a result of that justification, being therefore justified by faith, or having been justified by faith, it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God. And we have obtained entrance, we have obtained an introduction into the grace in which we have taken our stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So everything that comes to us in way of blessing uh, in the spiritual life comes through this work of the gospel uh, in our lives. 
And then we went to number four, the gospel cannot fail to fulfill God's divine plan. And there we saw the whole question of how is it that God could have made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the main, did not receive the gospel. And yet the Gentiles, the nations, did receive the gospel. What in the world is God doing? And God, uh, and Paul demonstrates that really what that shows is that salvation has always been by grace, and he also shows that salvation has always been through faith, and that one day God will save uh, both uh, together and demonstrate his glory and his wisdom and his grace. So that's what we did last time. And then this evening we're going to consider the next section, which the gospel creates a Christian community that glorifies God. And that's chapters 12, 13, 14, and then the first part of chapter 15. That is, uh, it's, it is true that this section of the book contains many commands, many instructions, uh, many um, exhortations. However, it's, they're not just isolated uh, um, statements. They're not just isolated obligations that we have. They tie in directly to what Paul has taught us about the gospel. And I think the idea here is that when, when the gospel saves, right, it is the power of God to salvation, it saves and creates a community that then is able to adorn the gospel and manifest the gospel and live out the gospel. And so that's what we're going to focus on uh, this evening. Now, a question we have is, why is this section of the book so important? Well, obviously, I think that we care a lot about, well, what do I do with all this, right? It's important to us practically. Okay, we've studied uh, about what uh, Paul is teaching, but what should we do? That's obviously a reason it's important, but I think there's a theological reason and if we go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which is the uh, theme verse, I believe, for the entire book of Romans, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul, are you not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Why do you glory in the gospel of Christ? Why are you a gospel man? Why are you driven and, and consumed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it is because it is the genuine power of God unto salvation everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so the power of God works not only to justify us, and certainly it is the power of God which justifies us. It works not only to free us from condemnation, but it works to change us. It changes us individually and it changes us corporately, and it works its way out in our lives and so it's absolutely essential, as you can see in your notes, it's absolutely essential that, uh, we, um, that we live a Christian life that shows that the gospel really is the power of God and is not just human power. Sadly, I think oftentimes people get the impression from the way we live that being a Christian is about what we can do in our own power. And it's not that we necessarily believe that, I think it is more the fact that if we're not accessing the power of God in the way we live, then it will appear to everyone around us that we're just doing what humans can do. And that, of course, is never going to cut it in the Christian life. God never designed it to be that way. So I think we see a problem today, and I think you can, you can observe this certainly in our culture in general, in the culture of even uh, broader evangelicalism in general, Bible-believing people, uh, I think you can also see it in our own lives individually many times that the lives of believers often fail to reflect the gospel that we preach. So 
How do we deal with that? Well, the answer to any problem is always a theological truth. Don't let anyone can, uh, try to convince you that there is something, that there's some kind of a disconnect between theology and practice, right? You've heard the saying, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You can't be earthly good unless you're heavenly minded. That's the only way. We're to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. You can't make a difference unless you are different, fundamentally different. And so the theological truth is that the gospel creates a people that glorifies God. The true gospel changes people and demonstrates. And so Paul is saying to the Romans, look, this is the way you need to live. Now it's interesting, I think he's assuming... You can sort of see in the, in, the out, in the outworking of this, he's assuming that they can do it. But you see, that assumption is based upon the fact that they've received the gospel. They have the power of God at their disposal. They've already been changed. They've already died to sin. They've already risen with Christ. They've already have the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit. They've already uh, gone from minding the things of the flesh to minding the things of the Spirit. And because of that, they are now capable of being able to stop presenting themselves, their members, as instruments of unrighteousness, but to start presenting themselves as, as members uh, for righteousness unto God and holiness. And so the assumption, when he gives a command, he assumes they can do it, but they can do it only because of what? The gospel. And that's foundational, right? You can't, religion is not about, uh, is not about trying to force the goats to act like sheep. Right? It's about leading the sheep to be what God has made them to be. So that's the theological truth. But then what should be our response? So we have a problem, we have a theological truth, and then because of that truth, we have to appropriate that truth by faith, submit to it, and live it out. So through the transforming truth and power of the gospel, we must live lives of service, testimony, and harmony. Service, testimony, and harmony. Okay, so point number one in our, in our outline. The gospel motivates and empowers us to live for God. The gospel motivates and empowers us to live for God. And we see that in verses one through two. Very, very well-known verses. In fact, I am sure that most of you here have heard at least one message, if not many messages, on Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. But it's interesting, you see two things there. You see a motivation and you see an empowering implied, stated and implied in those verses. First of all, the mercies of the gospel are the motivation for spiritual service. Paul says this explicitly. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Notice what Paul does not do. Paul does not say, I order you based upon what I will do to you if you don't do this. Right? Like a uh, friend saw his guy in the store, working in the store. He says, how long have you been working here? And the guy says, ever since they threatened to fire me. That's not a Christian attitude, folks, <laughs> right? That's wait until forced. Christians aren't wait until forced, right? God has put something in us and given us the ability to respond to him. And there is an expectation, right? There are many imperatives in this part of the book. 
but there is a love and a mercy behind the imperatives. Okay? It's a little bit like this. When you are younger as a child, you, are, you learn to obey largely because you're made to obey. Then when your parents get older and you honor your parents, right? Some of you I know or uh, uh, many of you I know are taking care of parents or have taken care of parents. And at that point, the honoring is not forced. It's not wrung out of you. It is out of love and appreciation for your parents and a great sense of duty and debt to them, right? And so I think that's what Paul is saying here. Because of all that God's done for us in the gospel, that is highly motivating for us to give our lives to living out the truths of the gospel. Now, I just want to focus in on some of the things he says here. First of all, this idea, I beseech you. This word is, you've uh, uh, perhaps heard the word parakaleo, and uh, it is sometimes translated, it's here translated beseech, to beg, but it can also be translated encourage or exhort. Okay? And um, it's interesting that we see that word, uh, or a, 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 we see a cognate of that in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, when Paul is explaining what he wants to do when he is finally able to get to Rome. And notice what he says here. I long to see you, they may impart unto you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. So he's longing to minister to them so that they can be strong and firm and established in the truth. And then he goes on to explain, he says, however that is, that I may be encouraged together with you. And all that together is one, is, is I, if I recall correctly, is all one verb. I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. But this is related to that word which is translated beseech in chapter 12, verse 1. In other words, Paul saw the mutual faith as a basis of what? Encouragement or exhortation. Our faith, and when we get together and talk about our faith, when we hear testimonies of how people got saved, when we think about the grace and power of God in our lives and the lives of other people, and when we live in a gospel-saturated environment, that then is a motivator to us. It is an encourager to us that we can then bear fruit and live lives that, are, uh, that adorn uh, the gospel. This is a word that goes very well with the idea of the mercies of God, because Paul is exhorting them, he's encouraging them. Now, Paul has the power to, the right to command them, and there are many commands in the New Testament. But there is a sense in which Paul wants them to feel the force of the gospel of grace as it works its way out in their lives. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And of course, that's because of all that Paul has taught. Right, it comes right on the heels of chapter 11 and on the great wisdom and power and might of God. But really, the therefore is referring, I believe, back to everything Paul has taught us in chapters 1 through 11. All of it is motivating. There should be a motivational aspect to everything that we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. It's interesting. He is using words that reflect back on the grace of the gospel. He calls them brethren. Now, in, if you remember in the book of Acts and in the, book, uh, in the, in the Gospels, it's very common for the Jewish uh, uh, nation, the people of the Jewish nation, to call each other, say, brother, right? And, of course, that's because they were all children of Abraham, children of Isaac, children of Jacob, right? We're, they were all related in a covenant promise with God. But it's interesting, Paul makes it very clear that all the children of faith are children of Abraham, 
children of Abraham by faith and children of God by the Spirit. And we see that here in Romans 4.16. He says, therefore, justification is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise, he's talking about the promise God made to Abraham, might be sure to all the seed, that is all the descendants, not only to those who were of the law, but also to those who were of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Right? Abraham is the father of the faithful. And so we are children of this promise. And therefore, we are brothers and sisters one of another. But not only are we children of Abraham through faith, we are also, according to Paul's teaching, we are also uh, children of God. And we know this by the spirit that God has given us. He said, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, or Dear Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? We are the children of God. Why must we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? Because God is our Father in Christ. We all have one Father. We are all in the family of God. And Paul is appealing to them based on spiritual relationship. Of course, he had never seen them. He hadn't been there. He hadn't seen them face to face, although some of them he knew. But, uh, but, and he's from a Jewish background. Many of them are from a Gentile background. He is from the eastern part of the Roman Empire. They're from the western part of the Roman Empire. And yet they're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Then we come back to our verse again. And it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That word that's translated here, mercies, can also be translated compassion. It's translated that way in chapter 9, verse 15. Paul is talking uh, about how God showed mercy or compassion to Moses by allowing him to see the glory of God. The privilege that Moses had was not earned by Moses, but was given by grace. And he says, for he, that is the Lord, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And that word is related to our word for mercies in chapter 12, verse 1. The principle, although the word is not used in in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, the concept certainly is. Think about the mercies of God that are demonstrated in this passage. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The motivation One of the great motivations for Christian living is the mercy that God has shown upon us when he saved us by his grace. And then what does he appeal for us to do? He says, I appeal for you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. To put your bodies at God's disposal. You could even almost say, report for duty. Make yourselves available to God as a living sacrifice. And I think there are allusions here back to what Paul's already taught us. Notice what he said in chapter 6. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do not present your members as instruments of, right, uh, instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Notice what he says. Present yourself to God as someone who was alive from the dead. And then he comes in chapter 12, and he uses the, the allusion 
the allusion to the, I believe, the burnt offering on the sacrifice where the whole animal was consumed on the altar as an offering to God, indicating complete and utter commitment to the Lord. And he says, now, make your lives, your living, be a sacrifice to God. Dedicate yourself, consecrate yourself wholly to the Lord's service. But notice he's echoing the language of chapter 6. You are alive in Christ. Therefore, present yourselves a living sacrifice to Christ. Now, the point I want to make here is notice how this exhortation that Paul gives us is not just sitting in the air. It's connected to the very essence of the gospel. If you understand the gospel, it will motivate you to Christian service. If you feel a lack of motivation, then a looking at what God has done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ is a wonderful way to be motivated and encouraged to serve God. And then he says, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, although he does not use the sacrifice language in chapter 6, notice what he does say, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. We are commanded and encouraged to present ourselves as servants of righteousness unto holiness because God wants a holy sacrifice. So the mercies of the gospel are the motivation for our spiritual service. But the, the realities of the gospel are the power for spiritual transformation. You see, it's one thing to be motivated to do a thing. It's another thing to have the ability to do a thing. And uh, sometimes we have the idea, well, if I just wanted to do it bad enough, I would be able to do it. I've often thought of it this way with regard to being able to witness, for example. And people say, well, everyone wants to talk about, is happy to talk about their football team. Why aren't Christians happy to talk about the Lord? And the answer is the devil isn't trying to get to stop you from talking about your football team. And the world's not trying to suppress the knowledge of your football team. And your flesh is is not conspiring against you when you want to talk about your football team. But when you're trying to, to do something for God, you are battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the idea is just wanting to more is not enough. It's essential, because if you don't want to, you will not appropriate by faith what God has given you. But you have to have something to appropriate. You need promises that have actual power if you're going to be any different. And so Paul is demonstrating, I believe, uh, that, that these um, he's connecting this living for Christ to the spiritual realities of the gospel. Because the spiritual realities of the gospel are what? The power of God. They're the enabling power of God. They give you the ability to live a life that's different from the life you lived before. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's interesting. Do not be conformed. That could either mean don't do it or stop doing it. But then he says, be transformed. That is present tense. It means be continually transformed. Be ye being transformed. Be constantly in this process of transformation. And this process of transformation is through the renewing of the mind. And that's what allows us to prove or demonstrate uh, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, it's interesting. One of the commentaries um, that I read uh, 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 Douglas Moo had a, an interesting comparison. 
he compared what we see in Romans 1.28 with what we see in, or contrasted it with what we see in Romans 12.2. In Romans 1.28, it talks about how God gave them over to a reprobate or a debased mind. Notice the word debased there is adokimos, which means disapproved. Disapproved in the sense of proven unworthy, proven unfit. And the mind, the noose, to do those things which are not fitting. That's what, that's what happened to people when they began worshiping God in the form of an idol. He, he gave them over to various kinds of sin, uncleanness, and eventually to this idea of a way of thinking, a mind that can only produce disapproved things, right? A disapproved mind, a mind that's incapable of reasoning spiritually and scripturally. Now notice what notice the other side of this though. Once we get through the presentation of the gospel, what does Paul say to believers? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the new same word that you may prove, that's dokimazo, that you may demonstrate or approve, show the value of, show the utility or the quality of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so Mu basically says this is in a sense he has reversed that curse. Right? There is the result of that wicked thinking and that alienation from God. And now that we've been brought back into fellowship with God, what are we able to do that we couldn't do when we were lost? We can approve, we can demonstrate the value or the worth of the will of God in our lives. So the Christian living is a proving out of the power of the gospel. So everything I think we see, I think that you can demonstrate from these two verses that whatever you see in chapters 12 through the beginning of chapter 15 flow out of the gospel and we need and need to be grounded in the gospel. Now it's interesting when we look at this he says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed and although he is not using the same words I think the same principle applies here in chapter 8 verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. There needs to be a change of our affections or a change of our orientation or a change in our way of thinking if we're to grow. And then what's the result of that is that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice what he says in 8, 28 through 29. We, we really love to quote verse 28. It's a wonderful verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But we, we need to know what his purpose is. What is his purpose? For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. He saved us to make us like Jesus and that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that we would be like him and we would be in reality that we would be in practice, that we would be in heart, that we would be in life, true brothers of Jesus Christ because we are like him, that he is the firstborn among many brethren. And that is the perfect will of God. See, I think that sometimes when we look at that and say, okay, we need to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, we think in terms of a specific Things. We think in terms of specific obediences or we think in terms of specific accomplishments or in terms of specific ministries. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, but there is a bigger overarching purpose that God has, and that is it's the overall process of making us into brethren, true brethren of Jesus Christ in the way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we talk. It is his wonderful purpose for us 
that we are proving out in our lives. We are demonstrating what we are truly in Christ and what we will be practically in Christ completely one day. So it is the power of the gospel that allows us to do that. It is appropriating the truths of the gospel by faith and then making application of that to our lives that allows us to live that. Now, what does then that look like? Well, the rest of these chapters really break out into things. What does this look like in practice? And I think we can look at this in terms of three basic ideas. Uh, What does it motivate and empower us to do? The gospel motivates and empowers us for spiritual service in the church. And that's where Paul starts in chapter 12. First of all, the humble use of one's spiritual gifts. I encourage you actually now to look at Romans 12. I thought instead of trying to reproduce a lot of verses here, right here in these chapters, I would just let us take a a moment to skim through and see what that says. So we start here in verse 3. Notice I say humble use of one's spiritual gifts. He starts out by saying, For I say through the grace given to me, to every, by the way, that's, a, that's an expression of spiritual giftedness because Paul is gifted as an apostle. <laughs> he was called and gifted as an apostle. And because of his gifting and calling as an apostle, because of the grace of God that was given to him, he exhorts them not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think soberly or reasonably as God has dealt to everyone the measure of faith. So the very first thing we do is we can't serve one another unless we have an accurate estimate of ourselves. If we think we're big stuff, then we'll never be a blessing to anybody. So it requires humble, right? It requires humble use of one's spiritual gifts. Then he talks about how we're all members of the body, and therefore we should use the giftedness God has given us, we should use it to serve others. And if you look through the list of the spiritual gifts here, we sometimes tend to focus on what's in the list instead of focusing on what Paul is saying about the list. It's good to know what's in the list. The point is, though, Use it, right? Use it. Serve others with your gifts. So whatever your giftedness is, use it for the Lord's glory and to be a blessing to others in a humble spirit. The humble use of one's spiritual gifts. Then in, in, in uh, chapter 12, verses 9 through 18, I think there's a little typo there in your outline. I have it 9 through 18. You could actually go to the end of the chapter and just make two sections. I divided it up into three here. But it says, the, the genuine expression of spiritual virtues, 12, 9 through 18. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one to another in brotherly love, in verse 10. Again, honor, giving preference to one another. By the way, can I just say, that is like a really, really good piece of spiritual instruction and advice. When we get involved in situations with folks, when we have conflict with folks, and in the, he's talking about in the body here, when we have differences or when we're dealing with issues, the natural tendency is to think that the way I view it is really closer to the way God views it than the way you view it. Right? In other words, you know, if you're a pretty cautious person and you're a detailed person, then you think someone else is being, they're being too careless when it comes to their approach to this. And they think you're being too risk-averse. And they're convinced that God is really more like them. And you're convinced that God is really more like you. And we can't seem to get the perspective. I really appreciate Pastor Nathan at the college because he talked about the fact that when you're dealing with a problem with a group of people, he says the, 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 the smartest person in the room is the room. And what he meant by that is when you're dealing with, when you're co- collaborative problem solving, 
You may have someone who seems to be the expert, but if, if you just follow the expert and don't let everyone have a say and participate, and certainly you do need to give weight to expertise, but the point is that you actually produce better outcomes when you listen to everybody who's part of the process and not just to the person that you think is the expert. Right? You don't check your brain at the door. And, and so the point is that, the point is that we, we, uh, we tend to think, and so we don't in honor prefer others. Put them ahead of you. The other person, husbands, your wife is more important than you are. Wives, your husband's more important than you are, right? Servants, when you're, when, you're, when you're serving, when you work for somebody, they are more important than you are. Bosses, your employees are more important than you are. I mean, <laughs> that's what it says, right? In the body of Christ, we need to esteem others as more important than ourselves. And of course, then that produces an attitude of deference and an attitude of love. So these are all, I believe, genuine expressions of spiritual virtues. We bless Right? We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We, verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. It's interesting in Proverbs, and I think it's uh, chapter 21. I'm having trouble remembering exactly where. But it goes through and talks about how all the, all the problems of a fool and how the fool will, you can't trust a fool. And if you send a fool, uh, you, that's a terrible thing. And, and a fool will not depart from his foolishness. He, he, can, be, he can be ground like with wheat and a, with a mortar and pestle. Right? And then he gets to one point and he says, he says, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope of a fool than of him. Right? You want to have less hope for yourself than a fool, be wise in your own eyes. Right? So he's talking then about this humble attitude which then produces genuine spiritual virtues. And then finally, and I, I took this last a few verses together because I was just struck by what he said here in verse 21. He's talking about um, when someone mistreats you, then you respond kindly to them. And then you have that puzzling expression, you shall keep coals of fire on their head, and there are various interpretations of what that means. But I think that the implication is that you will do something that's effective spiritually because notice what it says in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so that's why I mark that as the experience of spiritual victory over evil. True spiritual victory over evil does not come from putting in more of the same. You do not fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water, right? Right? I understand there are times in, you know, the illustration breaks down. Sometimes you do fight fire with fire because you burn up all the, I get that. But the point is that in spiritual, in the spiritual realm, we, we, more of the same doesn't help. You, if you oppose what's wrong by having the same attitude as the person who was wrong, then you make it worse, not better. You never make a problem better by adding flesh to it. You just compound the problem. We need to be different. As Dr. Jim Berg often said, you need, if you, to make a difference, you have to be different. So that's chapter 12. Well, what else? What else does the gospel motivate and empower us to do? And I don't know that Paul is necessarily here trying to catalog every single thing, every single aspect, every single relationship that we have. He is dealing with issues that would have been necessary in the lives of the Romans. But one issue was uh, the idea of having an ex- a testimony in the world. So it motivates us and empowers us for an exemplary living in the world. 
So what are some of the ways then that we are to live as examples? Well, number one, in submission to secular rulers. Paul's talking about here the secular rulers. Now, of course, the principle goes all the way back to the, to the Old Testament where, where children are told to obey their parents and honor their father and their mother, the principle of authority, that God has established authority, and when we honor a practical authorities in our lives, we honor the principle of authority. Now, we understand that there are exceptions when it comes to obeying certain unlawful and uh, ungodly uh, commands of those in authority. Peter said, you be the judge whether we should obey man or God. But oftentimes, frankly, the struggle we have with authority is not a, a sin or righteousness issue. It's the fact that we think we know better, <laughs> right? We think we know better. We're sure we know better. And the company would run so much better if we did it the way I think we ought to do it. And when, the more convinced we are, the more difficult we become. But one thing to remember about authority is a very simple principle. God gives the wisdom, will only give the wisdom to the person who's responsible to make the decision. <laughs> if you think of it, right? Who gets God-given wisdom to make a decision? The person God has given the decision to. Do you think God will give, do you have a, a sense that God will give you his wisdom to make a decision that's not your decision to make? So when we think that we know better than the person who is responsible to make the decision, then we are sort of saying, we know better than God knows because I have no guarantee that God's going to give me that wisdom, but I think I know better anyway. That's pretty arrogant. Now, I understand there are multiple roles, and so God may have given you wisdom to give advice, right? Maybe it is a collective or collaborative decision. So I'm not speaking autocratically. I'm simply saying is keep your lines, keep your lines of authority and communication square with the Lord, Right? Make sure that you are, in a sense, staying in your lane, right? And, and like I say, sometimes your lane means, sometimes your lane means making, uh, um, giving an honest opinion, right? What is it? You know, there are no yes men around here. When I say no, everybody says no, right? No. You know, that's not loyalty. Loyalty is giving your honest opinion, and sometimes God has called you to appeal to another authority. And that's certainly legitimate, okay? But the point is, he's talking about an attitude that says, I believe God is in charge. And because I believe God is in charge, I can be at peace in my soul. I don't have to force things or make things happen. I just have to obey God and submit to God and do what God wants me to do. And God will use that for his glory. And like I say, sometimes that involves making hard decisions. And I'm not trying to minimize any of that or to justify uh, abuse of authority. But that's a very, very important principle. Okay, also in love for one's neighbor. Paul brings this out, and it's interesting. Remember, he talks about the law, going back to chapter 7, and how we're no longer under the law. We're dead to the law. But then he goes on to show that we can, in fact, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by walking in the Spirit. And he demonstrates how that works here in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he gives the commandments that are often described as the second table of the commandments, or the commandments that refer to my obligations to my brother, uh, my neighbor, in the, in the original Ten Commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there be any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So the second great commandment comprehends those commandments, those obligations we have to one another. Genuine love for one another, genuine love for our neighbor, will cause us to do right by our neighbor. And it's very interesting. I was so impressed, uh, encouraged by some of the things in the uh, by the Ruth series because of Boaz and how you know Boaz was not a minimalist. He didn't just do the minimum. Boaz said, "What's the principle of the law, and how can I fulfill the principle or the spirit of the law and go beyond just the explicit command of the law in order to be a blessing to Naomi and a blessing to Ruth?" And uh, that's such a great testimony to us. And then finally, in sincere purity of life, notice chapter 13, verses uh, 11 through uh, 14. And do this knowing the time that now is nigh time to awake out of sleep. For now your salvation is nearer when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast aside the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And he's, He's using this illustration of night and darkness because so much evil takes place in the darkness, doesn't it? So much evil takes place at night. And he's saying, now you're not in the night, you're in the light. Because you're in the light, you can live like people of the light. And that's genuine, uh, sincere purity of life. And he describes things that were common in the culture. Revelry, drunkenness, licentiousness, lewdness, strife and envy. Those were all things common in the culture, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Remember, we are not in the flesh, we are in the Spirit. How do we know we are in the Spirit and not in the flesh? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us, Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 8. And if the Spirit of Christ is not in us, then we are none of His. If you're a Christian, Christ is in you by his spirit, and you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. Therefore, we are not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. We are debtors to the spirit to live after the spirit. And so we are to put on Jesus Christ in the sense uh, we are to live the way he lived, we're to think the way he thinks, and we are to make no provision for the flesh. So that's a sincere purity of life. And, And again, I would say that that this is something that we kind of in our church emphasize, right? We want to live in sincere purity of life. Not, not in a hypocritical show, right? Not trying to impress people with our holiness. Um, my pastor way back in South Carolina used to say, you know, the church is not a museum where we show off our holiness. The church is a mutual rescue, <laughs> He said, separation is to Christian living, is to the gospel as sterility as, as, uh, is to surgery, right? You don't want to contaminate the patient, right? The point is not to show how holy I am. The point is I really want to love God and be like him, and I want to genuinely love other people and minister to them. And because of that, I want to live a life that's godly and pure. So it motivates and empowers us for exemplary living. Then finally, we see in chapter 14, um, 1 through 15, 13, it motivates and empowers us to respond appropriately to differences between believers. And of course, the difference between the believers Paul is talking about was the difference between the, the Jewish believers, the believers from a Jewish background and believers from a Gentile background, and the differences between the Jewish people and the Gentiles were, were put there by God, right, in the Old Testament. They were based on the laws that God gave in the Old Testament. And, and he is basically saying, look, in Christ, those differences are done away. 
but you're still going to have differences of viewpoint. You're not going to see things the same way. You will not have the same practices. You will not make the same applications. So how do you respond to that? And we'll have to go quickly here. Number one, by avoiding a proud and critical spirit. He says, don't judge your brother. Now again, these are not things that are Bible commanded in, in the sense of you, 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 you must do these or you may not do these. These are applications that flow out of personal conviction and background. And he goes on to deal with all of those kinds of subsidiary issues. But the main issue is, do I have a proud spirit? That is, do I look down on my brother, who I think is not as spiritual as I am, or do I have a critical spirit? Right? Do I think that, do I judge my brother in something that I don't have a biblical basis to make a judgment on? So a cr- proud and critical spirit. Secondly, by prioritizing the spiritual welfare of fellow believers. Right? So often we want to win the argument. <laughs> we want to win the argument. Christ wants us to win our brother. <laughs> right? Right? You say, okay, it doesn't really matter who's right. It matters what's right. What's right matters. But who's right doesn't matter because in the end, God's the only one that's right. Anyway, we're all wrong in some way. God's the one that's right. So trying to make sure that I am right is really not a good way to approach these kinds of conflicts. And then trying to maintain a focus on the gospel ministry. I won't say a lot about this, but it's interesting. Paul, right here toward the end of the book, he gets into talking about his mission as he is the apostle to the Gentiles and how he wants to take the gospel to the Gentiles because it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. And, um, and I think the idea is, why is this here? Because that, if you're a gospel-centered person, then you don't allow these kinds of differences that Paul is talking about to get in the way of the mission. Right? If you're mission-focused, then you won't allow differences of opinion about uh, ancillary matters to destroy your priority or your focus. So that's chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. So very quickly, I'm running, I'm running over time. Takeaways, what are some takeaways? Do the mercies of God in the gospel motivate and empower us to live for him? Do you feel that motivation? Do you feel that power as you are living for Christ? Not are you perfect in it, not have you come to maturity in it, but do you actually feel that happening? Does this characterize you? Do you see it happening in your life? Could, it, could you see it happening more in various ways? Are you using your spiritual gifts in the body, in humility, love, and purity? Having a gift is nothing if you don't use it. Number three, do we desire to be a genuine testimony to the reality of the gospel? Do you really want to live a life that honors the Lord in the world? And then finally, are we the kind of people that deal with differences biblically and spiritually?